our road to walk then and now, is copyright protected. It may not be used or sampled without the owner's written permission. Welcome to Our Road to Walk, Then and Now, a podcast brought to you from Warren County, North Carolina. It's known as the birthplace of the environmental justice movement. I'm Deborah Ferruccio. And I'm Ken Ferruccio. In our last episode, we shared with our listeners the late 1979 and early 1980 responses of the North Carolina gubernatorial candidates to a letter and an analysis by Ken concerning the PCB and the larger hazardous waste issue. Former Governor Bob Scott, who was running for governor against Governor Hunt, concluded that he wouldn't have left the PCBs on the roadsides, that after almost two years the PCB material on the highway shoulders was still a potent chemical, that it was foolish not to act. Scott wrote to Ken, We are just now entering an age of chemical awareness, a fact which is supported by the concerns you wrote in your letter. Scott accepted the hazardous waste trend as inevitable when he stated in his letter, There will come a time when we will have to provide dump sites for toxic waste all over the state and nation. Candidate I. Beverly Lake Jr. wrote in response to Ken's letter, These are very serious questions, and the PCB problem in general must be appropriately and fairly answered and dealt with in the best interest of all concerned and without making Warren County a dumping ground for all toxic waste for all of North Carolina. Governor Hunt's statement to Ken's PCB analysis was, I read this with interest and I have passed it on to the appropriate members of my administration for consideration and action. I'll bet Governor Hunt was interested in what Ken had to say about how to deal not just with PCBs, but also with hazardous waste in general. If people want to look to Warren County as a model for research-based environmental activism, they can study the timeline of the extraordinary two weeks in late December 1978 and early January 1979 when an unlikely multiracial coalition of ordinary citizens created a grassroots movement against a proposed PCB landfill, affirmed their freedom to determine themselves and their county through the expression of their public sentiments, exposed a multi-state chemical dump plan for the county, got nearly a 1,000 citizens to an EPA public hearing with coverage by local, state, and national media, and changed the course of Warren County's environmental justice history, all within just two weeks. But on December 20, 1978, the situation seemed hopeless. The PCB landfill a done deal. That day, Governor Jim Hunt's administration announced that public sentiment would not deter the state from picking up the PCB-contaminated soil and burying it in a landfill in the Afton community of Warren County and that the state would present its PCB plans for EPA approval at a public hearing in Warren County just two weeks later. PCB-contaminated oil had been illegally spewed along some 240 miles of highway shoulders in 14 counties earlier in the summer. Ken had heard the Hunt administration's announcement on NPR's WVSP Warrington radio station when I arrived home that evening. The back seat of my car was loaded with a year of Margie and Tom Watson's News and Observer newspapers. Francis Davis knew we had planned to mulch our garden the next season with newspapers and that Margie wanted the newspapers picked up right away. We stayed up all night searching the newspapers for PCB-related news. 
By morning, we had two notebooks of articles that had us very disturbed, articles that would become part of archives we would collect and digitize over the next 45 years. We learned hazardous waste was a massive problem and that the PCB spills were just the tip of the iceberg. So Ken called Warren Record reporter Helen Howard, who suggested he write a letter to the editor for the paper's next edition. The deadline for submission was the next day. Howard told Ken that Afton resident Carol Limer had just dropped off an ad which read, PCB is poison. If you are interested in preventing the poisoning of Warren County, attend the hearing January 4 at 7 p.m. National Guard Armory. Make your views known. Public sentiment is vitally important. Each person must be present and speak out. We met Carol and Larry Limer, whose family had lived in the area for generations. They were already organizing a telephone committee, each person taking a page from the phone book. Others of us were to call key communicators and leaders of influence. We emphasized the urgency of the situation and asked people to attend three meetings, a December 26th citizens meeting at the courthouse, the commissioner's January 2nd, 1979 meeting, and the EPA public hearing on January 4th at the National Guard Armory. It was a lot to ask of people on such short notice. I created a PCB fact sheet for wide distribution and contacted educational and religious leaders while Ken wrote his letter to the editor and contacted the Associated Press, describing the state's strategically timed announcement as part of a Pearl Harbor strategy. On Christmas night, I spoke on WVSP radio. I told listeners about the dangers of cancer-linked PCBs, how they spread through nature, why we're fighting for our children and all generations, and I urge citizens to participate in the political spirit of Christ, Socrates, Mahatma Gandhi, and Martin Luther King Jr., and to attend the upcoming meetings. The week that followed was a grassroots uprising, moving at breakneck speed. December 26th, citizens met and organized as an official body, Warren County citizens concerned about PCBs, bylaws and all. Larry Limer was chosen as president, and I was chosen as official spokesperson, charged with delivering the group's hard-hitting bottom line. There will be due process first, then civil disobedience, a six-word ultimatum to the governor that would unify the county and program the next four years. As public sentiment was building, an unlikely multiracial coalition of leaders and citizens was quickly forming. Members and leaders of the Afton community, Warren County Schools, the NAACP, churches, and civic organizations joined the PCB landfill opposition. In my December 28th letter to the Warren Record, I addressed the dangers of PCBs, the local sovereignty issue, and asked readers, what will children someday say of Warren County as we celebrate the county's bicentennial year? Will they say, we poisoned our own streams and allowed cancer to flow freely through our faucets. I caution Governor Hunt that public sentiment is the very cornerstone of democracy. Two days later, we learned that indeed the expression of the will of the people was making a difference. In a December 30, 1978 News and Observer article, we learned that a group of nine Warren County officials had been secretly flown on the governor's plane to Sumter County, Alabama, to tour a hazardous waste landfill facility 
owned by Chemical Waste Management Incorporated. The tour was arranged by Bob Goforth, director of the Governor's Task Force for Small Community Development. We learned in the article that Chemical Waste Management Incorporated had undisclosed plans to build a chemical waste landfill on a 500-acre site in Warren County for hazardous, industrial, municipal, and other wastes capable of serving all of North Carolina and several nearby states. Citizens were outraged at the prospect of becoming a PCB and a regional and possibly national chemical waste dumping grounds. They expressed their public sentiment, and waste management officials were listening. Goforth stated that concerning the 500-acre site in Warren County, the determining factor would be the public sentiment. On January 2nd, at the county commissioner's monthly meeting, the local officials who had toured the Alabama site went on record against the PCB landfill and the 500-acre dump. Citizens applauded their position, and commissioners voted to oppose the PCB landfill and the 500-acre dump. The course of history was unalterably changed because Warren County citizens believed the fate of the county was in their hands. They did everything they could to determine the county's fate. They put aside their family plans, holiday festivities, and their differences. They spoke out and affirmed their democratic rights to determine their own future. On January 4th, almost 1,000 citizens attended the EPA public hearing, and 92 citizens signed up to speak. The hearing ended at 2.30 a.m. Chemical Waste Management's Alabama landfill site that had planned to locate another facility in Warren County began with some 330 acres of land in 1978. Forty-five years later, in 2023, the landfill facility is now 2,700 acres. What would Warren County be today if 45 years ago citizens had not affirmed that public sentiment is the cornerstone of democracy? What if they had not unified their collective will and seized the present day in order to ensure the future? Would Warren County have become a massive chemical waste dumping grounds? Would there be an ongoing PCB landfill? Or would there even have been a 1982 PCB protest movement? 1979 and the last 11 days of 1978 were boots on the ground exhausting for Warren County citizens. And for Ken and me, the year was especially difficult and busy since it was Ken who kept reminding us that public sentiment mattered. In order for public sentiment to matter, though, people had to be informed. We had to educate ourselves and each other on the issues we had never even thought about. We had to wrangle over language in order to take the knowledge that we found in our research and to put it into a vocabulary that the public could take time to digest. For this long year, when we weren't teaching, Ken and I read about PCBs, landfills, and EPA regulations. We analyzed policies, wrote treatises and letters talked and met with citizens and officials. We were tired but happy to do what we could. In our latest effort, we had sent out Ken's PCB analysis to the gubernatorial candidates and to the news media, and now Christmas was coming. We decorated the cabin for Christmas, Christmas tree, Christmas lights and all, and planned to have a quiet Christmas together, although I figured Ken and I would be immersed much of the time in PCB-related matters. At the last minute, however, Ken suggested that I take a break, that I join my sister, Victoria, and go with her to visit our family in Columbus, Ohio for Christmas. He said that he would be glad to stay home. 
keep the wood stove going, the pipes from freezing, and he would take care of Fletcher, our dog. So Victoria and I headed north for Christmas. It was Christmas Eve, 1979. I was thinking that the PCB demonstrations were inevitable. I just didn't know when. I knew I would need to stand by my December 1978 statement, due process first, then civil disobedience, as a last resort if Governor Hunt were to forcibly bury PCB-contaminated soil in Afton. I knew that even if Deborah and I had to walk to the landfill site alone and protest the siting of the landfill, we would. While I was thinking about the inevitable conflict that lay ahead, I decided to take a walk down the hill. As I was walking back, I looked up and saw the cabin all lit up in white Christmas tree lights among the stars. The sight reminded me of the Christmas story, the child in the manger, the three kings bearing gifts, and the later crucifixion of Christ. When I got back to the cabin, I went to the kitchen and poured a glass of wine. Then I went to the office, sat at the typewriter, and the stream of recollections flowed through my mind. I thought about the wool coat I was wearing that our friend Law Benny had given me from a collection of tweed coats kept from a daddy's store after he died. And I thought about how literary influences of the past flow through literature of the present. And I thought about Matthew Arnold's poem, Dover Beach, about Socrates long ago on the Aegean Sea, hearing in the ocean the eternal ebb and flow of human misery. While I was writing the poem, the phone rang. It was Mary Hidden Carr, whom we fondly called the Chief. She called to wish me a Merry Christmas, and then invited me to join her and others when she learned I was alone at Christmas night. We talked about the PCB issue and how the new chemical world was colliding with the old. I thanked her for the invitation, but stayed and finished the poem. I titled the poem Christmas Eve, 1979, A Journey to Bethlehem, which reads as follows. This humble log cabin seems at times no more than a manger cradled in the stars, and I, a stranger from afar, come to worship, seeking renewal through the wine of a divine ritual. I'm drunk with the wine of an old age, old clothes, wanton wool coats, gifts that fit me well, and worn in memory of one whom I shall never know. And not with the wine of an old age only, but as history and casks of wine long mellowed, till some poor unfortunate fellow with wit for axe breaks open the cask and lets the old wine flow, so poets in apostolic succession, illuminating present and past, renew the lineage of Christ through the poetic act and intoxicate my soul. Poetry is a journey to Bethlehem. I haven't been able to find a card that says just what I would want it to say, Christmas stubbornly refusing to clone cards of my own musings, so I break open another cask and cut the wine deep with the crow's feet of self-reflection, undermining self-deception, bending rhyme to meaning in acts of self-restraint. I'm overwrought with wine this Christmas Eve, and with the eternal sadness Socrates heard long ago on the Aegean Sea, and it brought into his mind the eternal ebb and flow of human misery. Why should the long-fermenting old wine flow, flow again, and so renew the strife? Why, especially on this holy night, I'm overwrought with wine this Christmas Eve, and come to worship not in the glory of kings, but in the shabbiness of ceremony and ritual divine I sing, frost on my stubble chin, hoping to let warm love in, I am indeed fit mockery of the sublime, but still I sing, 
I'm overwrought with wine and could go on singing forever. A mere self-mockery, though clever, and no doubt much to your chagrin. But the phone is ringing. I'm invited to a noblesse oblige of Christmas Eve. Though no hierarchical suspenders hold up my jeans, my presence is required to rekindle an old saint's dream that the aesthetics of fire means no one is cold and that the Christmas tree that glitters means no one is hungry for the bread of life. A poet's dream, I know, for fire and cold, glittering lights, and hunger for the bread of life will ever be at strife as a new world with the old. In the grandeur that was Rome, a child was born to nail a man to a cross on Adam's grave. Shall I resolve to live in mundane ways in Adam's grave beneath the cross? Or as history and casks of wine must mellow till some poor unfortunate fellow with wit for axe breaks open the cask and lets the old wine flow, shall I, in apostolic succession, show them my manger, wine, and dull old axe, and journey to Bethlehem to be born? After I wrote my Christmas Eve poem, over the next few days, I continued to think about the PCB journey Deborah and I and Warren County citizens had embarked on a year earlier and wrote another poem titled The Sacred Wood. The poems are symbolic and have the same theme as both anticipate the civil rights demonstrations, so they are companion pieces. The Sacred Wood is the title of a collection of essays on poetry and criticism written by 20th century poet T.S. Eliot. By the Sacred Wood, I understand those works from tradition of various classifications reinterpreted, recreated, and streamed into contemporary works to provide insight into their significance for our times and perhaps for all times. The speaker of the poem is walking in the woods thinking about trees, the sacred wood, the preservation of which is linked to our fate. He is on his way to split and cord the wood that had been previously cut and had had a long time to weather. He finally arrives at the place where he begins to cut and cord the wood, associating some of the tough, knotted stumps with a kind of resistance which may be needed in the PCB conflict much on his mind as he thinks about the precedents being set and the environmental fate of Warren County and beyond. The Sacred Wood Time will show we couldn't concentrate to save our fate only, but cared also for the trees, their circles of destiny winding through our minds, informing actions of a political kind. These seed and soil-grown delights, fed on nature's dark intrigues, have a language all their own. So were children tracing letters for the first time. Folks told too late we'd learned too soon all wrong. Lost no travelers of a new frontier, pioneers of an old faith, whose presidential footprints blown away stand alone, where all directions seem the same. Then, circling through the trees, pine oak and hickory wind inward toward the core. Here, even before Maul hits wedge well-placed along lines of least resistance, we can feel muscle and stringy vibe give as oak and hickory split, and the two halves falling away are quartered and then quartered with the rest. But there will come a time when we will have to be more not resistant to Maul and Wedge and the axis cutting edge, more like these old weathered stumps which at least have to be carried whole to the agony of hearth, the center of the home. 
Then as now, we won't curse others for our fate, but rescue new hope from old trees, pine, oak, and hickory. Time will show we cared about the trees. These two poems of Ken's reflect a belief that he shared with his many, many students over the years, namely that life brings us to literature and literature brings us back to life. In fact, the method of this podcast series is a literary and cinematography method that puts the past in the present, the then in the now, and both in the future. This is a method clearly stated in the first two lines of T.S. Eliot's epic poem, The Four Quartets, which begins, Time present and time past are both, perhaps, present in time future, and time future contained in time past. Warren County citizens were not thinking about a literary method 45 years ago, that late December 1978 and early 1979, but they were thinking about their responsibility to the future. They believed that what they did or did not do in the present would determine the fate of the county. They knew PCBs and chemicals persist and are passed on for generations. Warren County citizens proactively acted on this belief with breakneck speed that could possibly be characterized as one of the most momentous two weeks in American grassroots organizing history. This Christmas season, we should celebrate the environmental vision and activism of Warren County citizens concerned about PCBs 45 years ago. We hope you'll join us next time as we continue to chronicle the Warren County, North Carolina PCB saga, past, present, and future. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year, folks. Thanks for listening. <laughs>